I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. The community of believers is a community within a much larger community. We're the special grace kingdom existing as light in the midst of the common grace kingdom. Christians have swung to both sides of the pendulum, on one far side walling themselves off from society, on the other conforming to the values and the behaviors of their society. Remembering back to Romans 12one 2 Paul challenges us to present ourselves to God as an act of worship out of a heart of thankfulness and wonder towards his great mercies. And we respond from the heart, we present our bodies, and we renew our minds. How do we renew our minds so as to present ourselves as members of a common human society in a way that's pleasing and acceptable to God? Paul recommends two perspectives for us to adopt as we venture out. Renew your mind in this way. Live with this perspective. Live as though you owe a debt of love to everyone you encounter and live as though you are waking up to the clear light of day. Let's read the text, Romans 13, 8 through 14. How are we as Christians to live in human society? Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Paul's first principle here for living in society is to live as though you owe a debt of love to everyone you meet. This principle is covered in our first three verses. Paul connects this scenario back to the previous one with the language of debt. He ended his exhortation on submitting to governing authorities with the practical command to pay taxes as that which we owe to the governing structures of our society. The context of owing nothing to anyone comes from having just said, do not owe the government anything but pay up. But Paul's not staying on the financial topic. He's using the language to set us up for a shocker. Owe nothing to anyone is a great bit of wisdom, and we can work towards that. Clear your debts, pay your bills, owe nothing. But then Paul goes on and adds, except to love one another. You know, he sets us up with a debt that never gets repaid. You know, the only debt you have is to love each other. Just that. That's it. That's simple. He doesn't explain why we have this debt, and we can imagine that we owe this debt because of what God has done for us. God has loved us. So we now owe love to everyone God loves, which is everyone. Remember Jesus' parable about the servant forgiven much by his master who then went out and threw men under him into prison for not paying the smaller debts that they owed him. Yet the master didn't take too kindly 
to that. As we have been forgiven, so we forgive. As we've been loved, so we love. It's the ultimate idea of paying it forward. The overflowing love of God to us never ceases and is never repaid. If we pay that forward, then our debt to others as a debt to God always stands. We always have something to pay ahead. Now, this is not to say that we pay off our debt to God by loving others. Rather, we show our gratitude to God and worship of God by imitating him. That's the idea that you pick up on in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We can also think about a debt of love as an obligation of our new nature. And that lines up with chapter 8, 12 to 13, that we're under obligation to live according to the Spirit because we've been made alive in the Spirit. This is who we are now. We are sons and daughters of God. We've been made new creatures in Christ. We're being conformed into his image. Therefore, we have a moral obligation not imposed on us, but which arises out of our new nature to live with integrity, to live out who we are becoming. The focus on love is interesting when we remember that Paul already addressed sincere love in Romans 12, 9 to 21. So we could ask, why come back to love now? So let's review the logical connections in our first three scenarios of this application section of Romans. Our first scenario was about the body of Christ. That was in 12, 3 to 8. Then Paul gave us the sincere love passage, which mostly focused on believers loving one another in the new gospel community. Having raised there a question of justice, Paul moved to the third scenario in 13, to 7 to address government. And there we had to think about the church as a community within a community. We're the special kingdom of God. We're made up of believers in Jesus Christ who live in the common grace community, which is the community of all men, separated from God, but not left absolutely cut off. Now, in our fourth scenario, Paul is moving from relating to the authorities in society to people in general in society, and he brings us back to love. Though in this love passage, he takes us to the Ten Commandments, and by bringing the Ten Commandments into the conversation, Paul creates links with at least three different legal contexts. First, there's a connection to the context of law and society. Paul has just said that if we do good in society, we don't have to live in fear of the governing authorities. The Ten Commandments were the centerpiece of Jewish legal code. What does it mean to do good in human society? Well, obey the Ten Commandments. That's a great model to go by. Second, there's a connection to the context of Mosaic law. Now, Paul has argued already that Christ is the end of the law, and Romans 1-11 showed us how that kind of language raises huge questions. If Christ is the end of the law, does that mean we are without law as individuals? And it's not only a question about personal morality. We can see here it's also a question about social order. And Paul addressed that question of lawlessness in chapters 5-8, through eight, arguing that grace ends the law but is the beginning of an even greater practical righteousness being lived out by those who have been made alive in Jesus Christ. Bringing up the Ten Commandments here provides Paul another opportunity to show how the end of the Mosaic Covenant does not equate to an abandonment of moral obligation for New Covenant believers. We have an obligation to love our neighbor 
which will fulfill the moral obligations to members of society that were required by Mosaic law. Third, there's a connection to the context of Jesus' teaching on the Ten Commandments. We noted that Paul's language on love in chapter 12 made a couple of allusions back to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In a section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21-48, Jesus gave an expanded teaching on the Ten Commandments. According to Jesus, do not murder covers more than not killing somebody. We'll come back to Jesus' development of the commandments in a moment. Paul's words here also bring out Jesus' famous teaching that the whole of the law and the prophets depend on the two commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. So that's in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39. Though Paul's reference to law connects us to these three different contexts, Roman law, Mosaic law, and Jesus' teaching on the law, this connection to the teaching of Jesus is the primary one for us in our interpretation of Paul here. This perspective on viewing ourselves with a debt of love to members of society around us is described in the first three verses of our passage. It starts with an exhortation and a claim in verse 8, which is followed up with two supporting statements, one in verse 9 and the other in verse 10. Let's consider these three verses, and then we'll come back to Jesus' teaching about the Ten Commandments. In verse 8, Paul exhorts us to consider ourselves as having a debt of love to others, and he then adds this claim to that exhortation, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The next two verses support that claim that loving your neighbor fulfills the law. Let's read the first supporting statement in verse 9. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there's any other commandment, It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, verse 8 stood alone. We might think Paul's statement that loving our neighbor fulfills the law was a reference back to obeying the law of human society laid down by governing authorities. Instead, we see that Paul has the Mosaic law in mind, which was a morally higher version of civil law than you would have found in the Roman society. Paul's claim is that loving our neighbor fulfills the high version of Mosaic civil code. The command to your love your neighbor was not new to Jesus. It was a quote from Moses. It comes from Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19 is an important chapter in Mosaic law in that it establishes the basis for law. Moses begins and repeats through the chapter this injunction from God, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Why should you obey these laws? Because they reflect my holiness as God. I am holy, you be holy. What does it look like to be holy? Well, Leviticus 19 gives us a practical list, and in that list he includes commands like love your neighbor and love the foreigner in your midst. Jesus had the foundational principle of being holy as God is holy in mind during his Sermon on the Mount, and he said it this way there, therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The character of God is our model and our motivation for law. The Ten Commandments starts with laws referring to our relationship with God and then moves to laws referring to our relationship with people. The law to honor our father and mother could be seen as a link between the two. And Paul refers here only to the Ten Commandments dealing with other people And that makes sense when we recognize that he's helping us to understand how are we to live in relationship to people 
in human society. And in helping us to do that, he's quoting those commands specifically from the Ten Commandments that address that, that address living in society. It's not clear why he chose to start with adultery instead of murder. He changes the order. And I'm not sure exactly why he dropped out do not bear false testimony. I mean, that commandment's about justice, and it's about not subverting the courts as a false witness. So perhaps it doesn't fit as well with his theme of focusing on, on others in society. But after skipping that ninth commandment of do not bear false witness, he then does include the tenth commandment. And that tenth commandment stands out as the one that's not enforceable. It's a commandment of the heart. So while we might find evidence that somebody has committed adultery or murder or theft, it's quite difficult to prove whether someone is coveting or not unless that coveting actually leads to an act of adultery or murder or theft because the, the coveting begins in our heart. And that's, that's important when Jesus starts to develop these commandments. He's going to start with the heart. And it's interesting to note that that is a principle in the Ten Commandments itself. The Ten Commandments includes at least one command that is a heart command. At the end of verse 9, Paul adds a catch-all comment. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. By saying, if there's any other commandment, we see that Paul chose laws that apply specifically to his current context But we also see that he uses a catch-all comment so that we don't need to overly think about what he left out because he's saying all of the law. So these four commandments here sum up the whole social and moral requirements of the law, which in turn are going to be summed up in the one command to love your neighbor. Paul is not reapplying here the Mosaic law to believers in Jesus. He's saying that if you live out the law of love given to us by Jesus, then you will indeed fulfill the law of Moses. The Mosaic Code still has this value for us in that it helps us to consider, to understand from God's point of view, what does it truly mean to love our neighbor in society? In verse 10, Paul makes a second supporting statement. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Here he simply points out that if we follow a principle of love, then we will not wrong our neighbor. We will not wrong him through adultery or through murder or through theft. We will not even wrong him through coveting his stuff. And the requirement of civil law is met by doing no harm, by not wronging. In fact, if we truly do love our neighbor, then we'll go far beyond the expectations of civil law. The laws of society focus on preventing harm, not on requiring good. We see this in the Ten Commandments. The bar is pretty low. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Those are extreme examples of bad behavior. They're enforceable laws meant to curb the harm of sin in society. The law of love that Paul advocates is a positive command. To love is not merely to resist harming somebody, but to work for the good of somebody. And this debt of love, this insistence that we should love our neighbor, goes far beyond what's required by social law. The Old Testament code had to provide enforceable civil laws for a nation, but it also pointed to this higher moral law. There is more than might first appear to the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, and do not steal.
And let's consider that. Let's consider how Jesus taught these commands. Can we really imagine that God would be happy with our behavior if all we succeeded in doing was to not commit murder? You know, is that the bar? I didn't commit murder today. God must be really happy with me. You know, I didn't, I resisted the urge. Everybody's still alive. God must just think I'm wonderful. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us that the act of taking someone's life is only the most negative extreme of murder. He says to call someone a fool is also to break the law of murder. There is a negative continuum that moves from thoughts to words to actions. That changes our perspective. Have I murdered someone today? Have I hated in my mind, with my words, with my actions, another person today? To murder is to disdain someone's life so much that you would be willing to remove their life for your own desire or gain. And that disdain begins in the mind. When we begin to devalue or disdain or disrespect the life of another human being in our mind, then we are beginning down the continuum of murder. The next step on the continuum is the move from hateful thoughts to hateful words, to communicate disdain, to put down, to devalue, to dismiss, to show distaste or hate for another human being with our words is to murder. It is to take life. You're nothing. That was stupid. You're an idiot. You know what? You are a moron. I don't care what you do. You're just like your father. You never get it right. I hate, I wish you were dead. Those are words of murder. Those are words that suck life. They take life. And they're on this continuum. And words can move in intensity and in hatefulness down the continuum. And at some point, just as thoughts move to words, words move to actions, to spit on, to scratch, to pull hair, to kick, to hit, all with the intent of harming, devaluing another person, that's murder. Until you finally get to the most negative extreme, which is actually taking a person's life. To sum up, disdain for the life of another human being expressed in thoughts, words, or actions is the sin of murder. Recognizing murder to cover a range of negative thoughts and behaviors, much more than killing a person, we might still ask, is this what God is after? Is God pleased with me if I succeed in not murdering in my mind, in my words, in my actions? Why, I think it's a good thought. You're resisting sin. It's a start, but it's not the goal. It's not enough just to recognize the negative side of the continuum. God calls us not only to abstain from death, but to pursue life. So we turn our back on these things. We turn our back on murder and on death, and we turn to face Jesus Christ to the positive side of the continuum. So now we need to ask, what's the positive opposite of murder? What's the extreme opposite on the positive side? What's the opposite of murder? It might say love. That would be natural, and it would be close. But when I'm thinking the positive, the opposite extreme, I'm thinking of something more concrete, more specific. I like John 15, 13 as the positive opposite to murder. 
Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The opposite of disdaining someone's life so much that you would remove it is to esteem someone's life so much that you would give up yours to preserve theirs. It is rare that a human being is called to act on this positive extreme of laying down their physical life for someone else. But on the continuum of love, we have opportunity all the time to set aside our life, to set aside our desires, our needs, for the sake of someone else. To take our time and our energy to give life to another human being. Love calls us to the thoughts, the words, the actions that affirm and build up life. This is the opposite of murder. It is creating life, building life, affirming life. So avoiding the negative side of the continuum may enable us to keep the laws of society, but we don't pay off the debt of love with that. Love is not simply not harming. Love is actually moving forward in helping. Love is a positive action. Words like these, you did that so well. I appreciate the work you put in. I am so glad God put you in this family. Can I give you a helping hand? That's a great idea. You know, I really appreciate your honesty. Or I appreciate your kindness. Or I admire your courage. There are a thousand examples of sincere, wholesome words that instead of taking life, give life. That's what you have to ask yourself. What kind of words are regularly coming out of my mouth? Am I a person who takes life with my words? Or am I a person who gives life with my words? And beyond our words are our actions, actions that help out, actions that communicate concern, respect, value, love. All of this is in the command, do not murder. Do not disdain the life of your neighbor, but love your neighbor by showing that you value her life. Now, how about the command, do not commit adultery? Does it work the same way? Well, what do you think? Would you guess that my wife is happy and satisfied with me if the height of my moral behavior is to not commit adultery? Hi, honey, I didn't commit adultery again today. Aren't you so pleased with me? You know, no, that's that's an awfully low bar. You know, it's the civil code. And it's a law that's enforceable. It's to place value and integrity on the family. But the negative side of this command starts long before a married person actually has sex with somebody else. Jesus taught that if a man looks on a woman with lust in his heart, then he's committed adultery. I don't think Jesus meant that initial attraction or lust that just springs to mind that you have no control over. I think he meant that first moment when we start to turn that initial attraction or lust over in our mind, as soon as we take it and do something with it, as soon as we take a mental step forward, that's crossing the line, that's adultery. And when we then create a narrative in our minds of carrying out any kind of romantic relationship or sexual action in our minds, we're going further and further into adultery. And those thoughts then come out as words, and words move to action. And again, God does not simply call us to resist the negative side of the continuum. He doesn't just want us to 
avoid death. He wants us to live life. So we turn our backs on the thoughts, words, and actions of adultery, and we face towards Jesus. What would you say is the positive opposite of adultery? I like Ephesians 5.25 for this one. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. My wife doesn't want me to just not commit adultery. She wants me to give my life for her. She wants me to love her and desire intimacy with her. She wants relationship with me. She wants me to show my love through actions that communicate that I value her and that I think she's wonderful. This is life in Jesus when my thoughts, words, and actions show love to my wife. And also we could add when my thoughts, words, and actions treat other women who are not my wife with respect as my sisters in Christ. Loving my neighbor in this means that when sexual thoughts come into my mind connected to women I may meet in society, I reject those thoughts, and I replace those thoughts with thoughts of value and esteem. I say to myself in my mind that that she is a creation of God. She is in the image of God, and she deserves the respect and the esteem that everyone made in God's image deserved as one loved and gifted by him. To love my neighbor is to consider how to show respect how to show value. So now, how about do not steal? I'll leave you to consider how this continuum works. You know, how does, how does stealing begin as thoughts in the mind on the negative side? And what's the positive opposite of stealing? How does it work in the mind positively? And what are the positive actions that are the opposite? In regard to do not covet, that command could fit well on the continuum of all the others. You know, to covet is a desire in my mind that can pull me down the wrong side of the continuum for do not murder or for do not commit adultery or for do not steal. All of these can follow a desire to have that which is not rightly mine. Desiring what's not mine can lead towards murder or toward theft or towards adultery. Covetousness expresses dissatisfaction with what God has given and with the circumstance he's allowed me to be in. The positive opposite is to turn my face towards Jesus and to find my satisfaction in him. Before moving on, there's one last question for verses 8 to 10. Who should we love? Who is our neighbor? Well, we know that one already, don't we? We all know the story Jesus told of the despised Samaritan who was the real neighbor to the injured Jew. The man beside you is your neighbor. The woman you pass on the way is your neighbor. Everyone in society is your neighbor. And if they desire your harm, you might want to say, they are no neighbor, they are my enemy. And that may be true, that's a fair point, but then I think Jesus also had something to say about our enemies. In order to renew our minds to think rightly about living as new creatures in society, Paul first says, live as though you owe a debt of love to everybody you meet. Now, in verses 11 to 14, he gives us a second thought for engaging society. He says, live as though you are waking up to the clear light of day. Paul writes in verses 11 to 12, do this knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. So it's not yet daytime, but it's not quite night either. 
It's the early hours of the morning. You know, the night's almost gone. The day is near. It's time to wake up. Paul's picture is the picture of the coming day, and it communicates both urgency and clarity. The urgency lies in the arrival of something new and momentous. We already notice Paul's ability to use the word salvation in either the past tense, as in 824, for in hope we have been saved, or in future tense, as in 59, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So when Paul speaks here of the nearness of salvation, he doesn't mean we're not yet saved, and it doesn't mean that he's inconsistent. It's a recognition of the already, but not yet, reality of our salvation. We are already declared righteous and thus secure in our forgiveness, in our salvation, but we're not yet complete and whole. Paul said earlier, we await the redemption of our bodies, and the creation also awaits its renewal along with the glory of the children of God. Jesus is coming again. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. We will live with him in a glorified existence. The full salvation of all things is yet to come. And Paul says it's nearer than when we first believed. The full light of day is about to rise up. Now, it's not exactly clear what Paul means by our salvation is nearer. The letter to the Romans comes about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. That means the earliest Christian communities have had a generation to grow up in church and now even have some grandbabies of the first believers in church. Even if some of the first disciples expected Jesus to return quite soon, by the time of writing Romans, there's been some time for those expectations to be somewhat tempered. Jesus also teaches a sense of urgent preparation for his coming in certain parables, such as the one about the thief who might come at the night, or the servant whose master has gone on a trip, or the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come. All of those are in Matthew 24 and 25. So even though he would not return for 2,000 years, God still communicated this way. I mean, he wants us alert in every generation. He wants us to live with a sense of urgency at the coming of Christ. You know, live as though he'll come tomorrow. You never know when you'll see Jesus face to face. It might be tomorrow. It will certainly be no longer than the length of your life. Every day we are closer to the day we stand before our Savior, whether at his coming to us or our going to him. We can see the gleam of dawn peeking over the horizon, lighting up the landscape. The night is nearly over. The coming dawn gives a sense of urgency. The coming dawn also brings clarity. We've begun to see with the eyes of faith. It is that moment of the morning where everything has been dark, but all of a sudden you realize that you can make out all the shapes. We've begun to see reality. We see sin as death. We turn our backs on the night of adultery, of murder, of hatred, and theft, and we turn to face the light of Jesus Christ, and we begin to see what true life really is. The coming day is bringing clarity. Paul then gives us a therefore verse in verse 12. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There are two actions involved in getting dressed. The first is to take off your night clothes The second is to dress as a soldier of Christ, to lay aside the deeds of darkness, 
put on the armor of light. Then in verses 13 and 14, Paul starts both with what we're to do, with the positive, with the putting on the armor of light, and they both make statements about what we're not to do, about a laying aside the deeds of darkness. The do statements are general and unspecified. In verse 13, behave properly as in the day. And in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. These are general exhortations to positive behavior, which are similar to Paul's owe no one anything but the debt of love and love your neighbor as yourself. These are quite general. They're not really specific. But to get an idea of what it might look like concretely, all we have to do is go back to the sincere love section of 12, 9 to 21, where we had about 20 positive exhortations. There was plenty of there for us to do. In our present verses, Paul gets a little more concrete with what we're not to do. We are not to live in the sins of human society. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. The first two pairs of prohibitions could fit under the typical meaning of the word to party. So no partying. Carousing is associated with excessive feasting and goes along naturally with drunkenness. The Greek word translated in my Bible as sexual promiscuity is just the word for sex, but the context indicates inappropriate sex, which in Paul's mind would have been any sex outside of marriage between a husband and a wife. Sensuality was a more general word for all kinds of inappropriate behavior. Strife and jealousy fit in with this kind of party scene. Drinking, sex, sensuality quite frequently lead to strife and to argument and to jealousy. Those two words also fit with the dark side of human society in general. Verse 14 just then adds, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And this is a great challenge for us in our already not yet state as we enter into society with our body not yet transformed We still covet what is not ours, and we still desire what is not life. And these are the types of things that society urges on us. You will find life in this. It's fun. Nobody's going to get hurt. You know, but if we've lived long enough, we know that's foolishness. Somebody always gets hurt, and we've been hurt. These type of behaviors tear down who we are and who we're meant to be. They hurt us, but more than that, they always hurt other people. Sex outside of marriage leaves a trail of pain and dysfunction. Drunkenness, drug use does the same thing. Jealousies and arguments and bitterness tear away at our heart and at our soul. That living a life of sensuality hurts no one is simply a false narrative. We are called to live life in society, to be in society, but not of it, to be salt and to be light. As you go to work, or to school, or the gym, or the cinema, or the club, or the beach, wherever you go that there are other people, keep these two principles in mind. Live as though you owe everyone around you a debt of love. And live knowing that you are waking up in Jesus to the clear light of day. So you are putting off the things of night and you are putting on the things of day. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, 
then check out the resource page at observetheword.com. 